Hi, everyone. Today, me and Hellevorn are going to be talking about how we wrote our sexual scenes in our stories, specifically focusing on the importance of certain erotic scenes in our works and particularly on Hellevorn's work for this particular episode. We're going to be talking also about some of the problems some we have experienced when writing erotic scenes and, you know, how we decide how explicit a scene should be and how it reveals certain characteristics about a character. Exactly. This is an interesting uh, topic because uh, I realized that um, before I had started writing um, erotic scenes into my stories, um, there were so many things about my characters that I had not yet discovered because um, um, this kind of uh, topic places them in, in situations that we don't normally see them when they interact with other people and uh, uh, well, that we don't see them on, the, on a daily basis. And um, I guess uh, it, uh, it is important to decide what kind of erotic scene we want to write because erotic novels or erotic stories are a completely different thing. We are going to go a bit into that as well, but we are, going, we are mainly going to discuss uh, those, uh, those scenes that can appear in our stories as a part of the daily life of our characters because sexuality is, um, no matter how much uh, each person puts it into practice, it is a part of everyone's life. So, of course, we experience it in very different ways, each of us and also our characters. They, um, and the way these, uh, these aspects are portrayed say a lot about our characters' personalities. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we're going to start with talking about what the main points are, like, you know, as writers, both of us, what are the main points that we both kept in mind when we created a sex scene in our works? Well, the first thing that uh, we have to think about is what we want to a story. So uh, what we want to uh, uh, to depict, is it, um, like I said, if it's an erotic story and the focus is only on sex, then we're talking about something very different. But uh, an erotic scene doesn't need to have as a main focus to be sexy or to turn on the reader, right? There are so many ways in which you can write an erotic scene. And um, so uh, the focus can uh, on character development and what it says about the person. So this is what we have to determine. And from that on, uh, we have to decide what tone uh, it will have because each scene should be represented the protagonist, right? I think it is a great way uh, for, for us to have the scenes reflect the character's personality. So uh, at least this is how I write such scenes in my own stories. So, um, and, and then we have to think about the atmosphere. So how do you want your reader to feel when reading this? What do you want them to think about? So where, where the focus is and what kind of atmosphere you want to portray. Mm -hmm, exactly. I think 
in in general, we can just see erotic scenes as an extension of exploring the character's personality and their backstory. And of course, as we both are want to do, you know, their various complexes and the psychology behind a lot of their actions. Exactly, exactly, yes. Yes, and and of course it is it is an important part after all because no matter how much our character puts that into practice, right? Uh, it, it is still important because it it can just be a scene where he thinks about such moments or in which they they dream about such moments. And yes, we we are going to to get into the examples as well <laughs> further on, <laughs> and. and how we writing where uh, it is happening only in the character's mind versus how you write it when it actually takes place and there are people involved. Mm -hmm. So another question that we will be covering in both of these podcast sessions about your characters and my characters respectively is how can erotic scenes be used as part of establishing a character? Right, right. So, so yes, this is what we're talking about and what we're going to, to show in our examples that uh, we see a character in their, in, in privacy. And, uh, well, there can also be a big difference between the way they think about sex and the way they actually put it into practice. And it can make for a very nice contrasts, right? Mm -hmm. the, the way a character can on their own and how they anticipate it is going to be and what it is like. And uh, well, uh, what we want to achieve, then we can establish the tone and we can make something humorous out of it. And uh, more say on this, uh, on this particular topic. Uh, and uh, well, you can go towards humorous, you can go towards uh, emotional, and uh, you can also go towards a darker part if if this is what you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of different things that you can change about a sexual scene and how it, you know, how you can modify certain aspects to tell more about a certain character. So related to this is we're also going to be talking about how we decide how explicit a certain scene is going to be. Exactly. That is a very good point because uh, um, it, is, uh, it is very much related to uh, what we want to achieve and also to the protagonist because uh, I always let my protagonists dictate uh, the way the scene is going and uh, how explicit it is and the language that I'm going to use. Because, of course, if we are thinking about a protagonist like Eilf, who is very demonstrative when it comes to sex and a nonconformist, right? So he is going to, uh, to think about and to describe sex in a way that is very, uh, well, he doesn't conform any kind of rule. He just says and does whatever he wants. And this is going to reflect in the way that I write the story, regardless of if I use a first-person perspective or a third-person perspective. So when it's Elf as a protagonist, I'm going to go into more detail than have 
someone like Ingvar or Aiden, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So th this is one of the things that helps me decide how into what kind of detail I want to go. And uh, another important thing that uh, that we can discuss here is that, well, um, we have. Uh, what, what I think should be done and what I do is um, try to mention only those things that the character does that is representative for them. So we have to keep in mind that the scene doesn't become very generic, right? Because, well, there, isn't, there aren't so many ways in which sex can be done physically. So there is much more variation on how the character experiences sex. So this is what the focus should be, right? If, if it just turns into uh, a, a list of actions and he did this and then she did that <laughs> and all that, well, maybe it's the right moment to cut it off. Just, just finish you know you, you don't have to go into all the details most people know how sex is done and it's not <laughs> relevant unless it is relevant for the character so if something out of the ordinary happens if uh, what the characters think is worth mentioning so just focus on the characters and not exactly on what is going on so of course you can mention it as long as it is relevant and as long as the character does something that is uh well specific uh, a specific kind of behavior but um the other parts of it should be the focus mm -hmm. right I totally agree. I mean, sometimes it is redundant to go into too much detail about that. And like you said, if the purpose of a specific erotic scene is to explore a character's psyche and his or her motivations, there's no need to go into, you know, the exact chronological, you know, recounting of what actually happened. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, it can get ridiculous <laughs> if we go into so much detail. It is well, it is the same, I suppose, with everything. I mean, if if you want to describe, uh, let's say, uh, a dance, so you have two characters that are dancing. Uh, well, you're not going to describe every single step for the, I don't know, five minutes, right, of, of the dance, because, well, people have seen dances before, right? You're only going to say, uh, uh, some of the moves that they make and the way in which they interact, what they think during the dance and uh, um, describe the atmosphere and everything, but not every single gesture. It, it does become redundant, like you mm -hmm. said. And we're also going to be talking about how we've chosen to depict unhealthy sexual relationships. Especially in your work, Helleborn, in Lucky Wolf, we do get to see a few unhealthy sexual relationships, especially since it's the medieval times. And back then, you know, some things like that usually did happen. And it's very realistic that it is covered. How do we, how would you say that you've chosen to portray such relationships in a way that isn't off-putting and isn't, you know, putting the wrong ideas in people's minds? Exactly. Uh, we, we have to, as writers to be constantly aware of what the reader is uh, is thinking and feeling while, while reading 
our stories because maybe we have something uh, specific. I mean, we definitely have something specific in mind, but the way that this message is conveyed to the reader is very important. And uh, uh, well, maybe our intentions uh, in, in describing an unhealthy sexual relationship are to, uh, um, to, uh, to emphasize what is, what is wrong and the negative effect it has upon one of the characters, for example. But it is important that this is very well reflected in our story. If it's something that is unhealthy, we don't want to portray it as something sexy. So if you want the reader to think, oh, this is so nice and so romantic and the characters get along so well together, then yes, by all means, make it sexy if that's what you want to. But if you want to portray that one of them is going to get hurt, and um, even if at, the, at that moment they are both feeling good, but if you know that you, you want to portray an unhealthy behavior from um, maybe an, an abusive behavior from one of the partners, you have to keep that in mind in your choice of words and the atmosphere that you that you want to create. So those parts that are supposed to be disturbing, make them disturbing. I mean, that there's not really a problem, I think, in, in making uh, a sex scene or any kind of scene disturbing if you want to, to bring out certain um, societal wrongs, for example. Exactly, and you do so a couple of times. You know, with mm, yes, exactly. Adolf and a certain character. Oh yes, 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 and uh, uh, and Adolf has some moments in his childhood when he when he encounters. Well, he has a, a lot of less pleasant encounters because Adolf uh, um, is also a prostitute when he is a teen, and this is one of the ways in which he earns money. So of course, Elf himself, um, because he is a child at that time and he, he doesn't really have experience in relationships, he's not very much aware that what he does is potentially damaging. And also it is worth mentioning here, like you said, that it is the middle ages and it was a time when people could have, could get married at the age of 12 and have children. So it's it's not really the same. 14 years old in the 10th century is not the same as 14 years old right now. So of course we keep that in mind as well when reading and writing such a scene. But um, it, it is this is one of those, uh, uh, those situations where maybe your protagonist is not aware that it is potentially damaging, but the reader experiences differently. When you know, um, his age and and you know that the kind of um, profession he has, you um, well you don't want to you, you you don't want to to like it too much, right? You you are not reading it and you are not writing it for the purpose of making it sound sexy. Of course, in my story, I do not go into 
any kind of detail when the, the character is so young, definitely. But I want the reader to understand what this does to his uh, perception of relationships uh, further on in his life and uh, the psychological effect that, that his choices at this age and in this respect have upon him. And this is what the reader has to understand. You don't show him what he does, but you convey the idea. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We're also going to probably end this discussion and the next discussion with my characters with a comparison or discussion about erotic fiction in general. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. Because there are many ways to do this. And uh, well, some of them are quite questionable. <laughs> so, yes, I think it is worth mentioning those things as well as one point. <laughs> yes, especially some examples that we've seen in the past week. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and some of them are really famous. And of course, they have been talked about before, but uh, well, they are worth discussing in this context that we are talking about today. Mm -hmm. So let's now talk about your characters. How are Eyal's attitudes towards sex like in general, as we can see in Lucky Wolf? Do his attitudes change depending on who he's attracted to at a particular moment? Mm, right, this is a very good point. And I'm very glad that you asked about uh, how he changes. Because as I started to mention before, Eyal's Eyal's views change a lot over time. He's always very open about it, um, even as um, e even when he is very young. So uh, um, he he doesn't really um, he doesn't have any issues with his sexuality. He is um, bisexual, and um, he he's very accepting of that. And like I said, when he's young, he, uh, uh, he even makes some of his money from prostitution. And um, I think that because he does this and because his family situation was quite difficult, having been abandoned by, by his mother at a very young age of six, um, he has quite a twisted understanding of relationships. So he's constantly seeking attention and affection, but he doesn't really make the difference between someone who really um, gives him that affection or someone who is using him. And um, this is one of the things that leads to a lot of problems in Eolf's life. But fortunately, he is um, not only open enough, but optimistic and perseverant enough to have a lot of relationships. And, and he's, even after those uh, uh, misfortunes happened to him in his childhood, but even uh, then he, he develops more and more self-awareness. So his relationships become healthier as time passes and he starts making better choices, especially after that moment when he hits rock bottom. And he is also lucky because um, his first real relationship, I mean, I, I think it is the only one because uh, other than this one relationship with Geir, which takes place um, 
when uh, it starts when he is 17 and lasts until he's 21. So um, it is a good and healthy relationship, no question. It, and, and it is, um, well, Gaet is, I think, a surprisingly good choice for Eilf because he made so many bad choices in his life until that moment. And I'm not only talking about relationships, but the ways in which he made money. Well, he did those things to survive, but also to, uh, uh, well, he, he was quite unscrupulous, e even as a child, right? And this also led to a series of bad decisions. And Gaet is one of the good ones. So, um, well, Gaet doesn't really match Eilf's openness when it comes to sex, but he's very willing to try and he's very demonstrative in his affections. So um, this is why the, the scene that I have with them when they are together, when, when they spend the first night together, is perhaps the most explicit uh, erotic scene that I have written because both of these characters uh, are are very open about it and uh, um, well they are in love and they are teenagers and they are very willing and the moment is just right for both of them and Eilf uh, uh, is of course very excited because he has planned this for so long so he, he wanted to to construct the perfect moment he made up the perfect story to get Gaet and help him with something because Gaet is a carpenter so he even had the right pretext it was snowing outside and Gaet's clothes are are wet so Eilf uh, uh, is alone in the house and Gaet can spend the night so it's just the perfect moment and so I did <laughs> go into a lot of detail because this is how Eilf would imagine it. Mm -hmm. This is how Eilf thinks about sex in a very open way. He doesn't really leave anything out because he is so excited about it that, wow, this is happening. And um, it is also that, um, that uh, part in the story which I've written in first person perspective. So those are Eilf's words. Um, well, I, I did, I think I censored a bit because I'm, I, I think that Eilf would go to, to, uh, to extremes in describing certain things. So uh, I tried to, I tried to keep him on a leash, but I still went into quite a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I did notice that as well. And I think it's very positive as well because, you know, his, his love for Gaia really, really shows through in that scene. And it's very touching. It's also kind of innocent in a way, because generally speaking, I think Eolf is not a very innocent character. He's seen a lot. He's done a lot. He's been through a lot. So it's nice to see him show a different side of him, you know? And I think it's also very different from his relationship um, with Ingvar later on, because not only is his relationship with Ingvar more cerebral, you can say, and less physical, there's also a different kind of tension because Ingvar doesn't necessarily want what he wants, even though he does feel attracted to him as we later learn. But Gare is a pretty simple guy, I think. I mean, he's not very intellectual, but then I think that's part of the attraction that they share because they both bond over the simple things in life, which include you know, sex and having fun. 
and they don't he doesn't think as much like he doesn't overthink like Ingvar does and I think one of the reasons why Ingvar and Eyolf don't always get along is because Eyolf doesn't overthink but Ingvar overthinks exactly that that's a wonderful way to put it and I'm really glad that uh, I could get that point across with uh, with both these scenes because uh well yes indeed it, it is quite innocent because uh well i think that Eolf is very happy to have discovered someone who is um quite innocent um in the way that gay it is and uh at the same time very demonstrative about his affection and attention and this uh, and, and this is what makes him also uh, really want to to get lost in these simple things because he he hasn't had very good experiences with with sex before. I mean, it, it is the first time he has done this with a man since his um, prostitution experiences. He has only been with girls since then, so uh, it. It is indeed a big moment for him. And uh, with Ingvar, yes, it is. Uh, the difference is huge because even though Eolf is the same person who, yes, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, overthink, but, um, Eolf, but Ingvar is on the opposite side of, uh, of this. So, um, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think both of these couples are very different, even though they both involve Eolf. Exactly. And the way that I've written the scenes between Ingvar and Eolf, well, first of all, it is a third person perspective. So we don't, uh, we don't hear Eolf's voice anymore. It is, it is rather from Ingvar's perspective. So um, at that at that point, we focus uh, mainly on Ingvar's thoughts. And Ingvar's inner world is so much richer than what he actually expresses because he has this, this problem with expressing not only his feelings, but to expressing himself physically, as, especially when it comes to interacting with another person. And because he is very uncomfortable in situations with people in general, and also very inexperienced in, in sexual matters, although he is uh, 28 at the time this takes place, um, I think these, these things converge. And I let this dictate the tone and the choice of words for that scene. And, it is very different from the one between Eolf and Geir. Mm -hmm. and the focus is not on what exactly happens between them, but on Ingvar's stream of consciousness and all these connections that he makes in his mind. And, and with these, I tried to, um, I tried to make the reader uh, feel sort of uncomfortable, to feel part of Ingvar's uh, lack of comfort, right? Because um, he diverges so much. Instead of paying attention to Eolf, even though he does feel attracted to Eolf, his mind just flies towards 
everything that can go wrong. He finds things awkward. He has memories from, from older days, from, from his childhood. And so many thoughts, like what if someone sees us? And what do I do now? And there are so many things that interrupt the flow of the story. And I really wanted the reader to feel this because it is, it is disjointed in the way it is written because Ingvar's thoughts are, of course, as, as thoughts go. Mm-hmm. It really shows us what kind of person Ingvar is. You know, he is actually quite anxious despite how he appears on the surface, you know, especially in this regard. I mean, he has no regrets about killing people or leading, you know, an army of berserkers to raid um, a monastery. But when it comes to situations like this, he is very not, I wouldn't say naive, but he is very inexperienced and it really shows. And it shows that he is quite sensitive about certain things, especially about how he is viewed by certain people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is very well said. And uh, the scenes with Ingvar are so uh, eye-opening for me when I wrote them. And I think they are meant to be so for the reader as well, because we see him in a in, in a situation that is so very different to, while, to, to what we've seen so far. And he is so different from what we would normally expect when we see how he acts in any other situation. So for him, it is an extreme situation, like you said. <laughs> the, the killing part is not extreme for Ingvar, but this <laughs> is. Exactly. And it also kind of shows what kind of people Eyalf is, I mean, what kind of per- person Eyalf is compared to Ingvar, because Eyalf, I don't think he ever, you know, directly kills anyone or takes part in a raid. But then when it comes to something sexual, it is something in his elements. Whereas I think if Eyalf had to take part in a fight like Ingvar did in the past, you know, with all these raids and stuff, I'm not sure how he would react. Would he be very uncomfortable and anxious or would he just force himself to do it anyways? Yes, that's um, indeed the contrast between them is very much apparent in this scene. Yeah, well, if you were to exchange roles, yeah, this is a good, this is a good question. Uh, well, yes, I think Eilf is so much a survivalist that if he were to, to fight, of course, he would be overwhelmed in terms of skill, but not in terms of boldness and willingness to survive. So he would pretty much resort to absolutely anything in order to, to survive and to get out of that situation alive. So um, he, even dirty things and everything he can, he can do because he would be very conscious of the fact that he would be overwhelmed by his opponent because there aren't many people who are less skilled in battle than he is. And um, being so pro- pragmatic, he knows very well that he is um, overwhelmed by the situation, so he would resort to anything. So to answer the question, no, I don't think that he would be as hesitant in a battle as Ingvar is. <laughs> in in a sexual situation <laughs> he, he would be better <laughs> does ingvar ever have like any sexual scenes like you know in sons of disobedience where he lets go of this anxiety um well well yes yes actually he does he 
there is <laughs> there are other two moments when uh, when this happens and the thing with Ingvar is that he's most anxious when he cares so with Eyolf he cares and I think this is the main thing that brings about his anxiety with uh, with other people he doesn't so he doesn't overthink as much he doesn't ask he doesn't ask himself what do i do now what is the other person thinking what is the other person feeling how will they remember this moment he he, he doesn't care mm. he is not a very emotional person he's not a very insightful person when it comes to other people's emotions so um, he doesn't normally care about other people's feelings he is he's very very cold in this respect and and he can hurt other people very much and of course he can hurt ill very much but he tries not to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because he's so emotionally impaired we can say yeah so when i first read your work about ingvar i think that you had characterized him as totally disinterested in any sexual things I think it was only after you wrote Lucky Wolf that you realized that he was actually gay rather than totally asexual. How would you say, or what do you think has made you come to this realization with regards to Ingvar's sexuality? Yeah, that's a good, that, that's a good question because uh, indeed when I first imagined the character, and this was many, many years ago, like 10 years ago, I think, I was imagining him as asexual uh, because I wanted to show something different. I mean, this is how how I decided to to make such a character because uh, in, instead of portraying the uh, uh, the typical hero who has all the qualities in the world, is <laughs> including being very attractive and very charming with the ladies, uh, I wanted to make him totally disinterested in such things and in a way he is but I did not really think about his sexuality because I never placed him in a sexual situation uh the the first draft of the novel was made in such a way that there was no moment in the plot where Ingvar was shown in in anything sexual so I really did not think about it so uh when I wanted when I actually said sat down in front of the computer and thought, okay, what does Ingvar think about sex? How does he view it? This is when I started to change my, my own views of the character. Um, first of all, I realized that he was gay, uh, judging by how he treated Ivan, because you know, that wasn't really intended, it wasn't really planned, but it was rather the character of Ingvar that dictated where the story went. At, at, at one point, we, we've all experienced this. We create certain characters, but then they seem to, to, to come to life and uh, they decide what happens next. So the more you develop them, the, the more they become their own people and you cannot really impose things on them without making it seem uh, unnatural and uh, inconsistent. So uh, of course I realized that he was gay because I did write, um, well, about his relationships with Aiden and with Ranveig. So on the one hand, we have a female character who is very much interested in him 
And then we have a, a male character with whom he has uh, a friendship. And it was clear in the way that he was behaving with them that he was not interested in Ranveig at all, but he, he was giving Aiden preferential treatment. So <laughs> this is how I came to realize. And then uh, when I started writing uh, about sex in particular, then I realized that, um, well, yes, uh, he's not really asexual, but rather um, I think that his views on sex are also influenced by, uh, by his past and by his um, general coldness and in, in the unemotional way that, uh, that he deals with interactions with people and with how uncomfortable he feels with people. So it, it wasn't so much about being asexual, but there is a, uh, but, but this, uh, him feeling uncomfortable has a lot to do with how he interacts with people. So this is why I wanted to think, okay, so, but let, let's imagine a situation where he actually likes someone and the character likes him back. What would happen then? And this is how Lucky Wolf was was born. I mean, th this is one of those things. Mm -hmm. I see. So Lucky Wolf is actually a really great exploration of this because it actually is a direct response to the question of what would happen if someone actually liked him back. Exactly. Because mm -hmm. in Sons of Disobedience, I don't think he really gets this kind of relationship at all. Oh, no, 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 not, not at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you were trying to explore, did he ever have this in the past? Uh, yes, uh, yes, exactly. And uh, well, there is one more moment when he's placed in a, in a well, sexual situation uh, when he's younger, but then we, we are going to see uh, quite a published. Uh, the readers can compare the scene in Lucky Wolf with Ale to that scene uh, from that story, because um, even though Ingvar's, um, well, he's, he's still very, uh, overanalyzing and uh, he's still overthinking things and uh, he's thinking about a lot of other things and not necessarily about what is going on but then he doesn't care he doesn't care about his partner and so we see a different side of him and that scene is definitely not meant to be sexy I didn't write it in that way if the one with Eilf uh, does have that dimension as well. The other one is is not. I mean, I think that it, it comes off, I mean, he comes off as a bit creepy, I think. I mean, um, yeah, I think I'm not exaggerating. He's very unemotional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the feeling of that that short story was creepy because back then, especially, we didn't know much about Ingvar. And from what we knew about him, he was a very unfeeling, very distant, and maybe even psychopathic individual. That's the feeling he gave off, right? And exactly. I, I remember that story also involved mystics. Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. So he obviously has a thing for, for mystics. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> 
his <laughs> his mother was one uh there he meet, he meets one Eolf is one and in a way Aiden is one as well because he's a priest oh that's true yes but he's not the same kind of um mystic that you know partakes in hallucinogens because that was involved in the story right the mushrooms i believe oh yes yes exactly exactly well ingvar would know a lot about that from his mother (laughs) (laughs) and i don't think Aiden knows anything about those kind of things right oh no definitely not no Mm -hmm. i don't think he would want to take part no no i don't think so either no Mm-hmm. So he's the only mystic that Ingvar knows that doesn't use hallucinogens. Yes, exactly. Well, Eolf doesn't really use them either. I mean, at least not in the same way. Yeah, he has potions, we can say, of, of different herbs and aphrodisiacs <laughs> and things like that. But but not to the same extent that, that Valdis involves them in her rituals. And uh, this is why that scene with, with that certain uh, mystic that he meets in Kiev triggers a lot of memories of Ingvar with his mother. And Ingvar's memories with his mother are not pleasant. So mm-hmm. in the way those memories and, and the thoughts that they create in him mingle with the erotic moment, um, the effect is, I think, very different from what one would expect when seeing him in a sexual situation. It wasn't pleasant, let's just say. It was very scary. I mean, for that woman, it must have really scared her. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, uh, Ingvar's behavior is quite difficult to decode, but she does, uh, well, she does decode certain things because she has a lot of experience with men. So, uh, in a way, she understands him, at least his behavior and his intentions, much better than than other people, much better than the reader, perhaps. <laughs> but um, yeah, Ingvar is very difficult to read. I mean, even for Eolf, with all his experience with people, because, and, and I'm not talking sexually, but he, <laughs> he deals with people every day and, and he talks to them. He socializes so much and he loves doing that. And he takes pride in, in the way in which he interacts with people. Uh, he has become so popular because he's so good at this. But at the same time, uh, he does find Dingbar very confusing and he mistakes a lot of his gestures for for aggression, because this is how Ingvar generally acts when he is confused and hesitant. So Mm -hmm. as readers, we see him that he is in a way, um, well, we can't really describe him as shy and naive, but we can describe him as hesitant. And we see that he has good intentions, but the way in which he acts is very different. Yes. And I think as we know Ingvar more, he's not as scary as he used to be. I think deep down, he is a very relatable and empathetic, well, to people he cares about person. And he's not really as psychopathic as we would have thought, you know, especially in that Kiev story. Exactly. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to show more into Ingvar's psyche, because I used to have this picture of him but the situations that I placed him in did not convey this to the reader so mm-hmm. uh, I I let him create certain situations where the reader can understand him better mm-hmm. 
How about Lars and Helgi? We have them in the picture behind me. How would you say, like, you know, you did write some erotic scenes with them. And how do you think, you know, you applied their character to your characterization of their erotic scenes? Mm, well, yes, they are different. They are different from Eolf, but they are, um, they are very open about it, especially because uh, they fall in love with, with, well, with their best friend. So they, they are friends before they become lovers. So uh, they are very comfortable with each other. And this is one of the reasons why they are so, uh, so open about it. So, um, mm, well, they are quite naive and quite childish, I think. I mean, immature is, is a better word uh, when, when this scene takes place. Well, it is, it is a scene in which they just kiss. So it's, uh, but, uh, but well, of course, they, that is only the start of their relationship. So, uh, uh, but, but the, what we see in that story, Midsummer, um, is, is a very good indicative of what their relationship is like. They are, they are quite demonstrative about their affection for each other and they are willing to, to try all kinds of things and uh, they, they definitely don't have Ingvar's uh, hesitant <laughs> moments and uh, Ingvar's prejudices about sex. Um, because they are definitely not as introverted. And be also because they are very comfortable with each other, Ingvar doesn't have that, right? Mm. I mean, not usually comfortable with people, but he's never in a situation where he, uh, he can uh, take a friendship relationship to a different level, right? I mean, with Eolf, they aren't friends. They, they are associates at most when they try to be together so maybe if um if they had uh, well if that scene that happens in in lucky wolf would have happened let's say one year later that would have been a lot better for ingvar maybe the result would have been a lot better but of course he, he elf cannot wait that long <laughs> and and also he, uh, well, he went, he went a long way to, to create that perfect moment with Ingvar. He, he practically wooed Ingvar. <laughs> so uh, from his point of view and from the point of view of other people for whom interaction comes more easily than it does for Ingvar, that was indeed the perfect moment. Mm -hmm. But Ingvar, it's not enough. He would have needed much more time to get used to the person and maybe the outcome would have been different. Yeah, I agree. I think it's because Ingvar is someone who needs a lot of time to get used to a certain person. And Eolf is, I think, more hot-headed in his approach. Yeah, and, and he doesn't he doesn't imagine that someone can need so much time, you know. <laughs> I think he starts questioning, enough. like he starts questioning yeah. whether Ingvar actually likes him if he has to wait that long, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. He, 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 he probably wouldn't understand. I mean, he would understand if Ingvar were to explain it to him, but Ingvar never explains. So you have to guess what's <laughs> going on in his mind. And well, Eolf cannot do that <laughs> because they are so different and he cannot relate. 
Exactly. Yeah. Do you think that Lars and Helgi are a little bit like Gare? Oh, that's great. That's a great idea. Yeah, I think they are a lot like Gare because they are simple people who just take life as it comes. I think so. <laughs> so they, uh, well, everything is quite simple for them. Mm -hmm. I think that their social persona is, I mean, I'm sure that their social persona is not as self-confident as Ingvar's is. But uh, surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, uh, when in intimate relationships, they are so much more open and much more confident. That's true. I think a lot of people think that, you know, someone who is socially confident would probably be confident in an intimate relationship. But as we can see with Ingvar, that's not necessarily the case. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I'm really glad that I could get that across because I don't see that very often uh, portrayed in fiction. And it really happens because it all depends on, on what kind of a person he is and people are so different and they have so different uh, backgrounds and previous experiences that, that influence the moment that we see um, the character in. So if he hadn't had those kind of experiences, maybe he would be acting differently. Mm -hmm. That's true. Do you think Gare, um, Lars and Helgi are also kind of like Hakon? Mm, yeah, I think, I think they are. Yeah, I think so. I think so because I think that each of them has this kind of dose of naivety, but at the same time, Geir isn't so, um, he, he doesn't put on a mask like, like the others do. I mean, Hakon, well, we cannot really say that he puts on a mask. I mean, he, he, he is pretty much the, the person that he pretends to be, but I think that sometimes he's <laughs> over the top because uh, this is the image that he wants to, to project on others. But, but he is a very confident person. He, he really is. But of course, everyone, no matter how self-confident they are, they still have moments when they are unsure, but they... I think that he, he believes that if he wills himself into doing something, he will be able to do it better. So he just pushes away all, all thoughts when he begins to overanalyze something and just makes a decision and say, no, this is what I'm going to do. This is what uh, uh, Drenger yeah. <laughs> does. Uh, uh, a, a, a real man does, right? So this is what I'm going to do. And then he walls himself into doing it and he does it and that goes well. Um, with Helgi and Lars, well, they are not as successful in being <laughs> Drenger <laughs> as Hakon is. So uh, sometimes, yeah, they try to be, they try to look much more self-confident than they really are and, and more skilled with fighting and with everything and more more warlike than they actually are. So there is a, a great deal of, of bravado in, um, uh, in, in these two characters, whereas Geir is on the opposite side. He doesn't try to seem like anything. He's just, he's just himself and he doesn't really care about how people see him. He, he isn't a warrior. So he, he's not so interested in this, in how this very manly society perceives him. <laughs> so, so this is why we don't see this kind of, of mask on him. He, he is perhaps the most 
uh, genuine in this respect. But then at the same time, he hides his sexuality, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Others, mm-hmm. because he 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 is the one who eventually conforms to to society when he breaks up with Eolf. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you know I hope Lars and Helgi never do that. Yeah, I, I yes, I I hope so too. <laughs> of course, uh, they will be placed in certain situations, but. Uh, whether they would come to a point where they would give each other up just to conform, well, I really don't imagine it. Mm -hmm. That's good, yeah. (laughs) And Eolf and Ingvar, well, unfortunately, it's circumstances that tear them apart or come close to doing so, I would say. Not so much, you know conforming. I don't think either of them are interested in conforming. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, Eolf is very open and everybody knows what what he's about. So <laughs> he, he wouldn't have a problem in being seen uh, having a relationship with a man. So that's, that's definitely not an issue for him. And for Ingvar, um, well, he would resent the idea of people talking about his so even if if he were straight he would not want people to discuss his intimate relationships Mm -hmm. so i think that he is almost equally uncomfortable so it's it's not the sexuality that makes him uncomfortable but the very idea of people discussing his private life Mm -hmm. that makes sense Finally, did you want to close this off with a discussion on erotic literature? <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, well, yes, there are so many um, things that we can discuss uh, regarding uh, erotic literature because there are there are so many books that um, that um, that are purely. So uh, that, that kind of writing is quite different from what we have done, isn't it? I think so, yes. The purpose is, is very different because we have focused on psychology, on, on character development. And these erotic scenes uh, are only there because they reveal certain things about a character. Whereas when you're writing an erotic story, uh, well, as, as I've seen, I don't have a lot of experience in reading erotic novels, but from what <laughs> I've seen, the whole point is just just the six and and the story just jumps to those moments in time (laughs) when when the characters meet to have sex right like nothing in their lives exists anymore they don't have jobs they don't have families they don't have personalities and this is very important i think that this is one thing that really creates the difference between an erotic novel and a novel that has sex in it right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these are different things because in erotic stories the the characters the protagonists are quite generic aren't they they are just people that every reader can identify with in one way or another because <laughs> this is the whole point of the story right it's like it's like pornography in film for example mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're not supposed to i mean you're supposed to identify on a 
uh, on a base level and that's that it doesn't matter what kind of personalities they have well the only personality is- they do have is that they're enjoying it <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> yes and uh well sometimes they are enjoying things that should not be enjoyed i mean they are completely lacking insight aren't they <laughs> I think that's part of the appeal for certain people because it's like dubious consent or something. I see that on Archive of Our Own, you know, that site where they have a lot of fan fiction. I see that people are linking to it all the time. I don't go on it, but I see that there's like a separate category for non-dubious consent or something. Dubious, yeah. Oh, I I don't know that one, but I I know what you mean. (laughs) So I think it is something that appeals to a certain demographic. So I guess it could be like a a genre of erotic literature. Yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, of course, there there is something for everyone. But uh, and to some extent, that is okay. But well, there are certain things with which the problem is that they project the wrong thing that they give the reader the wrong impression. And, um, well, that is actually a a mistake. That is just bad writing. When you write something that is is very clearly wrong, but you write it as if you were not aware of what you were writing. And of course we can mention the very famous example of Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, the, the premise of the story is actually very interesting. If you were to make a psychological novel about, about a, a male character with narcissistic personality disorder and a female character who falls for him, that's okay because this actually happens in real life. But do you portray it as romantic? <laughs> The fact that you are even doing this, it shows that you are not aware of what is going on. How little insight can you have in your own characters and and in life in general? And and some Omegaverse stories. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't read a lot of them, but some of them do come off as sexist and quite honestly, rather frightening. Oh, yes, exactly. It's sexist. And then we have the problem that you mentioned with consent. I mean, th- that is definitely wrong. When, when you want to portray a scene where one of the characters is not consenting, it's okay. These things happen in life. So it's, it's very good to talk about them. We shouldn't sweep them under the rug. The more we talk about them, the more we understand what is going on. But if you don't realize that this is a problem, then yes, it, it is not only bad writing, but it is, well, impaired judgment in, in real life as well. Especially if it's portrayed as, you know, sexy or romantic, just like Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Especially when they portray certain characters, especially the Omegas, as basically having no will of their own. They just, they just, they always feel like they have to do it. They're always going into heat. I- it's terrible. It's 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 really terrible. And um, uh, all right, I, I I'm not even going to go into the situation where people actually feel attracted to this. I'm just discussing the fact that uh, the the writers of this kind of fiction portray it as romantic, 
I mean, <laughs> in what way is it romantic? I, in, in our time, in the 21st century, after so many public discussions about the importance of consent, how can you still not realize that that kind of situation means that one of the partners is not consenting and how can you not realize it is a problem and how can you think it's cute or romantic i think it's so, because they claim it takes place in a different universe and their biology is different <laughs> and they also usually put in a soulmate system where after they uh they do it the person bites the other person and they are linked forever so i guess that's romantic because now they they can't be you know separate from each other so it's I don't know. I, I guess they just see it as romantic because it's even more solid than marriage is, right? Oh Because they literally can't leave each other. Oh God, that that is so twisted. Because, uh, well, if if we remember so many times in history and cultures where people were forced into marriage and they could not leave that person, and well, maybe from from the outside we can say, oh they are together forever in spite of whatever goes on and whatever abuse goes on between them they cannot leave each other but with our minds of people from the 21st century who have been part of a lot of these discussions about relationships and consent and sexuality do we still find this romantic <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is interesting. I never really understood the logic. I mean, no matter how many arguments we see for this as to why this is romantic or sexy, I, I still am not convinced. <laughs> I don't think I ever will be. Yeah, I'm not either. I mean, each to their own. I guess some people are into this because I guess it could be used as a way of critiquing gender relations. But the ones I've seen, unfortunately, I don't think it, it ever did that. It just basically fetishizes this codependency sort of relationship. Oh, exactly, exactly. Not to mention that the Omegaverse is very uh, offensive to uh, um, LGBTQ relationships and uh, especially gay relationships because it, it is kind of a universe that, that is focused on, uh, uh, on male characters. I mean, at least from what I've seen, there are almost only male characters that are involved and, and, to, and to place uh, male couples into into this stereotype it, it's just terrible and, and I find it very offensive and I'm obviously not even a man so I don't imagine how it would be for someone in that situation mm -hmm. but well I don't know maybe maybe we've just read the wrong stuff maybe there are actually stories that, that do try to make some social critique. But again, it doesn't matter very much what exactly you are trying to, to portray, but how you are doing it. So you can basically take any subject you can think of and make something good out of it or just do bad writing. So, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like Oscar Wilde used to say, right? So there is no moral or immoral writing. There is only good and bad <laughs> writing. That's <laughs> true. It definitely applies. You to... can write about anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. As it is with Fifty Shades of Grey. I, I would really love to, to read an actual psychological novel with this plot. Mm -hmm. 
finally, let's talk about Aiden and his sexuality and how you portrayed his sexuality in Sons of Disobedience. How would you say Aiden's sexuality is like? We know that he is a very sheltered person, you know, who lived a very religious life. So he also didn't get a lot of, he didn't get a lot of exposure to sexuality. So how would you say this affected his growth and his perception of himself and his own sexuality? Exactly. Uh, I think that Aiden is, um, well, in, in a way more, more balanced uh, than other characters that we've seen because, uh, well, he, he is not as, as open as uh, Helgi and Lars, and he is also not placed in these situations where he uh, gets into a relationship with his best friend. So things are more, more difficult for him, and he also has to deal with a lot of of prejudice because of the the upbringing that he received, and because of the fact that um, well he, he comes from quite a religious background. So not only the beliefs of his family, but also the fact that he was uh, educated to be a priest. So um, well, well, these certainly influenced his his views on sexuality. So I think that in a way he's the most romantic, at least out of these characters that we have discussed. But at the same time, um, he is, well, I guess Eof could be described as romantic with someone that he really cares about. So if we imagine Eof and Geir, uh, because that is when Eof really went all in, right? With, with Ingvar, he's much more cautious and he's much more mature as well. And Ingvar is not such an easy person to get along with as Geir is. So, so we can just take the relationship of of Eolf and Geir and well yes there Eolf he there he was romantic in the sense that he would have done anything for his partner and and he would have put him first in all situations and he did not mind giving a lot in the relationship well Aiden is not as open I think I mean he he does expect much more in return than Eolf does and uh, well, now because we're talking about sexuality, yes, in, in a sexual way as well. So he would probably not be as as generous as Eof is. So um, I think, uh, yeah, this is one difference between them, but he would be much more uh, loyal in a relationship. I mean, um, he would definitely be monogamous. He is the definition of a monogamous person. So um, once he he falls in love with someone, he 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 cannot think about anyone else. So uh, uh, this also reflects in his uh, sexual life with with Ranveig and with well, pretty much the lack of other sexual partners. And now that you mentioned it, uh, there will be a story within my series on Tapas, Tales from the North, where Aiden will be placed in a, uh, well, erotic uh, context with, uh, with a girl other than Ranveig. And I'm not going to go into more detail now, but this will be a topic for a different discussion sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. Quick question, because, you know, Aiden was raised to be a priest. Did he ever think that because he's a priest, he will never, like he will stay a virgin for the rest of his life? 
Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that he he imagined that <laughs> what his life would be, and um, yeah, I, I think that he he really tries to be okay with it. But um, of course, he he is still young. He is eighteen at the time when this happens, and he until that moment he had spent. Uh, his his puberty with uh, only with men at the monastery, so he wasn't really uh, tried and tested in a real life situation. He never uh, experienced temptation, right? And fortunately for him, when it comes to that moment, he's a priest no longer, and he's not sure that he ever wants to to take that road again because he wasn't. Uh, well, he didn't really go to the monastery out of his own free will. It was the the path that his family had chosen for him. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> he realizes that it is probably not his vocation, which is also fortunate from this standpoint. That's true. But how do you think that influenced him? Like the idea that he had for a couple of years that he would probably be a virgin for the rest of his life. How do you think that influenced his views on intimacy and sexuality? Um, well, I think that, um, first of all, he's fortunate that this is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> So when he, when he really gets to do something that he thought he would never do, it, it has to feel good, right? You, you, you really feel good about yourself. But at the same time, uh, I think that he has, he, he has a hard time overcoming his um, prejudice and what he had previously thought about sex. I mean, I, I'm sure that he tried to convince himself to some extent that it's not worth it, that, that he can live without it, without a problem. So, uh, well, there is a lot of conflict within him, whether he should go down this path or not. But uh, once he gets closer and closer to Ranveik, uh, he realizes that it's not a problem because it's not so much the sex as it is the purity of your intentions. And when he realizes that he actually loves her and that he wants to marry her and to be only with her for the rest of his life, then he, he doesn't have much of a problem about it. So he really believes in, in monogamy and in loyalty in this sexual sense. So once you, once you are in a relationship, you, you don't have to, to, to go astray, not, not once, not even in thought. So this very Christian way to view relationships is very much reflected even after he 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 stops following the rules of, of a monk. Mm -hmm. I see. So it is modified, but he still has that strictness. Yes, definitely. definitely. Mm -hmm. But he never has the same anxieties that Ingvar has. Oh yeah, exactly. That's a good comparison because Ingvar does not have a strict upbringing in this sense and not in a religious sense and not in any sense. I mean, his parents have a very, um, well, no, I'm not sure if I should term it a normal relationship given their characters. Uh, well, I will discuss more about these two in more detail at one point so, 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 so people can see what I'm talking about. But uh, from a sexual standpoint, they have a normal amount of 
involvement, you know. So Ingvar really did not have this model of, of oh, sex is dirty and you shouldn't do it. And it's, it's, it's something else for him. So it's not really this kind of prejudice. Mm-hmm. It's not from his upbringing in, in this way. Mm-hmm. That and makes sense. Yeah, so that is interesting that Aiden can uh, more easily overcome it, even though he he had so many uh, restrictions or he grew up with so many strict rules and Ingvar is the one who cannot overcome it, even though this is not the situation with him. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But, but this is because uh, the reasons why uh, Aiden would be hesitant about it are external, but with Ingvar, they are internal. And that is a much more powerful motivation because you can easily give up external pressure once you feel comfortable enough. But when that pressure is internal, that is so much difficult, more difficult to overcome. I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I think so, especially given Ingvar's overthinking personality. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And he's much more anxious than Aiden is too. I think Aiden, he thinks a lot, but I'm not sure if he overthinks. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I, I think he doesn't, at least not in the same situations that Ingvar would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this was amazing. Thank you so much for this awesome episode. And we explored so much. Thank you very much. Yeah, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about my characters. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, goodbye.